Welcome to Puritans Read, where we read aloud great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Today, episode 16 of The Like of Christ in the Soul by Henry Scougal. Whatever we find lovely in a friend or in a saint ought not to preoccupy us, but rather elevate our affection. We should convince ourselves that there is so much sweetness in a drop that there must be infinitely more in the fountain. If there is so much splendor in a ray, what must the sun be like in all of its glory? We cannot claim that the remoteness of the object is a reason for our ignorance. As if God were at too great a distance to be able to communicate with him or to love him. He is not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28 We cannot open our eyes without beholding some evidence of his handiwork and glory. And we cannot turn our gaze toward him without finding that his gaze is already upon us. He is waiting, as it were, to catch a look, ready to engage in the most intimate fellowship and communion with us. Let us therefore endeavor to lift our minds up to the clearest possible understanding of the divine nature. Let us consider all that his works declare or that his word reveals of him to us. And let us especially contemplate the visible representation of him who in his Son was made in our own nature. For Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. He appeared in the world and revealed both what God is like and what we too ought to be. Let us reflect upon Christ as we find him described in the Gospels. For it is in this way that we will behold the divine nature, even though covered with the veil of human infirmities. And when we have formed in our minds the clearest notion that we can have of God's being, infinite in power, in wisdom, and in goodness, the author and fountain of all perfection, let us fix the eyes of our souls upon him so that what we see inwardly may affect our hearts. And while we are musing thus, let the holy fire burn within us. We should meditate on God's goodness. If we add to all this the special thought that God's favor and goodwill are toward us, then nothing is more powerful in gaining our affections than the discovery that we are individually beloved. Expressions of someone's kindness are always pleasing and acceptable to us, even if the person offering them is otherwise mean and contemptible. But to have the love of one who is altogether lovely, to know that the glorious majesty of heaven has regard for us, it should astonish us. It should overwhelm our spirits and melt our hearts and kindle a flame in our whole soul. Now, as the word of God is full of the expressions of his love toward us, so all his works loudly proclaim it too. 
he has given us our very existence, and by preserving us, renews the gift of life to us every moment. He has placed us in a rich and plentiful world and has liberally provided for all our necessities. He rains down blessings from heaven upon us and causes the earth to bring forth our provision. He gives us our food and our clothing, and while we are consuming the fruits of one year, he is already preparing to supply our needs in the next. He sweetens our lives with innumerable comforts and satisfies our needs with suitable materials. The eye of his providence is always upon us, and even while we are asleep, he watches out for our safety. But lest we should think that these testimonies to his kindness are any less substantial because they are the easy accomplishments of his omnipotence and do not put him to any trouble or discomfort, he has found a far more wonderful way of endearing himself to us. He has borne witness to his affection for us by suffering as well as by doing, and because in his own nature he cannot suffer, he assumed ours. The eternal Son of God clothed himself with the infirmities of our flesh and left the company of those innocent and blessed spirits in heaven who know how to love and adore him. He chose to dwell among us and wrestle with the obstinacy of the rebellious human race. He offered himself up as a sacrifice and propitiation for them. I can remember how one of the poets was intent to express his emotions when, after a long period of resistance, he said, It was as though the God of love had shot all his golden arrows at me but could never pierce my heart, until at length he put himself into the bow and was himself thrust straight through me. I think that this aptly portrays God's method of dealing with men and women. For a long time, he contended with a stubborn world while showering many blessings upon it. And when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself that would testify to his love for men and women and engage theirs. The account that we have of the Savior's life in the Gospels presents us throughout with the story of his love. All the pains that he experienced and the troubles that he endured were the wonderful effects and uncontrollable expressions of that love. And then there is that last dismal scene that was the cross. Is it possible to remember it and question his kindness or deny him ours? Here, here, my friend, is where we should fix our most serious and solemn thoughts. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians three seventeen through 19 We should also reflect often on these particular tokens of favor and love that God has bestowed on us. 
How long has he borne our follies and sins and waited to be gracious to us? He has wrestled, as it were, with the stubbornness of our hearts and tried every method to reclaim us. We should keep a record in our minds of all the special blessings as well as deliverances that we have encountered in our lives. Some have occurred in ways that convince us clearly that they were not the result of chance, but the gracious consequences of divine favor and the unmistakable responses to our prayers. We ought not to sully our thoughts about these things with any harsh or unworthy suspicion that God's interventions are designed on purpose to enhance our guilt and emphasize our eternal damnation. No, my friend, God is love and takes no pleasure in the ruin of his creatures. If they abuse his goodness and turn his grace into wantonness, thereby plunging themselves into greater depths of guilt and misery, then this is the effect of their obstinate wickedness and not the purpose of the benefits that God bestows. If these thoughts have at any time stirred a real love and affection toward Almighty God in our hearts, then that ought to lead us easily into other dimensions of religion. So for that reason, I shall say less of them. To nurture charity, we must remember that all men are related to God. Our hearts shall be enlarged in charity toward men by remembering the relationship in which they stand to God and the impressions of his image that are stamped upon them. They are not only his creatures, the workmanship of his hands, but also those for whom he has a special care and for whom he has a very clear and tender regard. Having planned for their happiness from before the foundation of the world, he is willing to live and converse with them throughout all the ages of eternity. The most unpleasant and contemptible person we meet is still the offspring of heaven, one of the children of the Most High. However unworthily a person might regard that relationship, as long as God has not abdicated and disowned him in the final condemnation, then he would have us acknowledge that person as one of his own and as such embrace him with sincere and cordial affection. We all know what concerns we are likely to have about someone who belongs to a person that we already love. We gladly welcome every opportunity to look after the child or the servant of a friend. Surely then, our love for God ought to spring forth naturally toward other men and women if we think that every soul is dearer to God than all the material world and that he did not count the blood of his son too great a price to pay for their redemption. They carry God's image upon them. It is also true that all men and women have a special relationship to God, and so they have his image stamped upon them. For this reason we are obliged and even stirred to love them as he does. In some 
this image is more prominent and conspicuous, and we can discern the lovely traces of divine wisdom and goodness in them. In others, it is miserably tainted and defaced. Yet, even then, it is not altogether erased, and some evidences remain. All men are endowed with rational and immortal souls, with understanding and wills that are capable of the highest and most excellent things. If, for the moment, they are disordered and out of tune with God through wickedness and folly, they may indeed move us to compassion and never extinguish our love. When we encounter a person who is perverse and ill-tempered, full of malice and contention, very foolish and very proud, it is hard to love someone who presents themselves in such an unattractive and unlovely way. But in such circumstances, we must consider these evil qualities to be the characteristics of a diseased and corrupted soul that is in itself still capable of all the wisdom and goodness with which the best of the saints have been adorned. The saints have been raised to heights of perfection so as to be fit companions for the angels. This perspective should turn our aversion into pity and make us regard a wicked person with the same sympathies as we have when we are confronted with a body mangled with injuries or disfigured with some loathsome disease. However much we hate the vices, we shall not cease to love the person. This concludes episode 16 of The Life of Christ in the Soul by Henry Skugel.